good evening. Well, don't say okay. That oh, now we're late. <laughs> we have to. We have to get our cues right. Good evening. There's no one here anyway, right? Welcome to our Q&A. Many people will be watching this after the fact anyway, so welcome. We appreciate the interest that people watch these videos. is really a great thing. True marvel of technology. I think as Buddhists we probably have a lot of bad things to say about technology, but it is powerful. In many ways it's just neutral power. In many ways that can be used for good or evil. There are some ways where reliance on technology is, I think, inherently problematic, but in some ways it's just a power that we can use and utilize for good. So many people learning about the Buddha's teaching would never have the opportunity without the internet. So tonight's a question and answer session. The way it goes is you close your eyes, take up a meditative posture and perspective, try to observe your experiences arising and ceasing, and if you have questions, open your eyes, type the question out, send it along and close your eyes again, and don't worry, if we get to it, we get to it, if not, well, you can just keep meditating. Yes, it's a good idea. Was it? Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Well, they should. Ha they shouldn't be doing that. They should be saying. They should do saying hearing, hearing with their eyes closed. Maybe we need a slower mode. Even in the Buddha's time, they had what's called Samudhaniya Katha, where even the Buddha, when he met people, he would engage in pleasantries. So it's, it's remarked, and I think it's remarked that specifically for that reason, because there might be a, con a question. Given that idle chatter is not wholesome, what about pleasantries? Greetings, how are you today? I think it's not hard to understand why it's good, useful, wholesome, why the Buddha even engaged in it. There's, there's goodness involved there. Not, not, not to mention how it being a custom. And following customs is often useful. myself in the Dukkha Nihanas 
struggling to push through and continue your meditation. Any advice? There are no dukkha jnanas in our tradition. That's a, that term has been coined by someone outside of our tradition. And I say that, I, mean, I, I, I acknowledge that we shouldn't be critical of others and so on, and so I don't mean to really comment on that tradition, but it's an important thing to say because I, I think it, it, it can create for people a pessimistic, right, a negative perspective on things. There are no dukkha jnanas. All jnanas should be uplifting, enlightening, inspiring. There, of course, during your meditation you can have suffering. I mean, that's the whole point, is to understand why we're causing ourselves suffering. But the jnanas should not be unpleasant or suffering. They should be liberating. And so it's not to say your meditation will be pleasant, but... It appears that there is an there is an unuseful, unhelpful conflating of the suffering that's going to happen in meditation and for most people, and the um, the goal, right? So as though that suffering was a part of the path. That you're supposed to suffer You're not supposed to suffer If you're suffering you're doing something wrong And that's the whole point To see what we're doing wrong So I would take any of that, All that suffering that you're experiencing Discard any idea you might have Of that being jnana or knowledge Or anything or wisdom or something Take it as an object And try to learn to, to put it aside Throw it away I mean just acknowledge it But you have to face it And you have to Learn to stop clinging to it and stop reacting to it. But um, besides, you know, the obvious of just be mindful through it, you have to. I think, I think it's wrong to suggest that that's knowledge. That there's any such thing as a dukkhanyana. I think that exacerbates the problem. For some people, of course, it, it may not for all. But I don't think it's helpful, personally. When noting the rising, falling, and sitting, should I note sitting for the duration of a rising and falling? No, just for as long as it takes you to know you're sitting. I mean, or not even, just for the time it takes you to say it. It's just a moment. Just once. If the rising and falling disappears, you can focus just on the sitting and say, sitting, sitting, for a while, until the rising, falling comes back. Bhante, should we meditators practice physical exercise? I'm asking because physical exercise may give us a longer lifespan and therefore we would be able to practice more during this lifetime. Uh, well, that's a good question. Does it extend your lifespan? I don't know. And should you be doing everything and anything that can extend your lifespan? I don't know. It seems sketchy to me. I'm not going to give you advice on exercise. I think you have to figure that out for yourself. I think I would forbid forbid it for meditators if when they were doing an intensive course, but that's a different story. That's when they're supposed to be meditating hours and hours a day and Physical exercise would ex would seriously get in the way of putting out effort in meditation. I think a lot of the unhealthiness that's associated with lack of exercise has to do with poor eating habits uh, and and stress, you know, because exercise can help relieve stress and so on. But I think if you're a serious meditator, I don't think there's any reason to to meditate to practice physical exercise. And I'm skeptical that it would actually have any effect on it prolonging your life in a meaningful way. As a meditator, you know, as someone with reduced stress and proper eating habits, that sort of thing.
I will say, sorry, just to go back, that walking meditation is meant to be a sort of exercise. It's not really, you know, it's not aerobic or anything. But um, there, there's an exercising quality to it in the sense that it helps the body to move and to work out uh, blockages and so on, you know. If you think metaphorically in in the sense that a lot of Eastern religions do or, or traditions do, they talk about chi energy and chakras and all that. I mean, that's all just concept. It's not real. But there's some idea there that that the body has systems and those systems can be aided by uh, movements and, you know, it's just an incidental thing, but it's one of the benefits of walking, that it's meant to support the proper flow of blood and that sort of thing, and the, the, you know, proper digestion, etc. So if you just do sitting meditation all the time, that can be quite unhealthy, apparently. You should do walking, especially after eating. Yeah, go ahead. Next question. How to deal with bullying? Well, don't do it. Stop doing it, I would say. No, I'm kidding. Um, someone is bullying you or someone you know is being bullied? That's probably the question. See... We've been talking about this, this idea of standing up for yourself versus letting people walk all over you. I think there's a misunderstanding that just because you're kind, compassionate, caring, mindful, non-reactionary, that you're just going to let people walk all over you. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think to some extent, at some times, it looks like that. And there's really nothing wrong with letting people walk all over you. To, to some, at some, in some instance, instances, what I mean to say is, so what? People are beating you, people are you know, hurting you, killing you, and so on. Ultimately, and I'm talking about an enlightened person, of course, because that's, it's what we're trying to go to get towards, and our road is going to be long and twisted, and we'll do some things right and some things wrong, but I just mean... At an ultimate level, in the end, you know, someone kills us. There was one monk who said, "Well, I'll just think. Uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've been given a gift because I no longer have to continue this mortal life. I'm free from samsara early." So, what what I mean to say is, it's not. It's not a. It's. It's not a matter of whether you're being hurt or, or, or abused or that sort of thing. And that's important because you, you can't control that. You can you know, find, I could give all these, this advice or people give you this advice to make bullies stop. Or more generally to stop people from hurting you. But that's not the point in Buddhism. That might be useful, that might be beneficial. It's not something I can advise on, but I can point out that, yeah, as a person, you're going to probably react when people try to hurt you. You might even hurt them back. You might um, try and, and find ways to protect yourself and so on. But that's all you know, just because of your concern for your life, which eventually you'll let go of along with everything else, you know. Once you are free, and then you don't have to worry about it anyway, because you don't need to live a long life to, to practice. You're already enlightened. But in the meantime, and even still, what's important is to understand the reason and the purpose for, for which you do things. So when someone is bullying you, or bullying someone you know, that's a bad thing. There's no question. You know, Buddhism doesn't say, oh well, it's fine, this person's being bullied, this person's bullying. That's just, Buddhism doesn't say that. It's wrong. Bullying is wrong. And it's right to say that that's wrong. It's often right, and I, and I say often because you never know, you, know, you, can't, you can't put general, you can't use general uh, 
advice what am I saying? You can't use specific advice for general circumstances, like bullying in general. I can't give you specific advice like say it's always good to stand up for yourself. I don't know, you know, what the situation is. But I say often often the way you deal with bullying is standing up to them. Not with anger, not with uh, ego, not out of even concern for your own well-being. But you stand up to them with truth. What you're doing is wrong. There's an incredible power in that. You don't need anger, you don't need attachment to, to your own well-being and so on. Right? This is what we are talking about recently in the Dhammapada. Siri, uh, Uttara and Sirima. She wondered, she asked her afterwards, why did you do that? Why did you throw the boiling butter on my face? You know, it's like basically saying, this is, uh, this was a bad, that was a bad idea, all those, you got beaten for it. And when, uh, when Uttara's mother was coming to her father and she was afraid her father, she was afraid her husband was going to hit her, hit her with a cane or something, because she came late. And she said, if he does that, he'll get no merit and no benefit from the good deed that I've done. And that's what she thought. And I'm not saying that was that was you know, the perfect way to think of it, but that, these are the kind of examples of the way you look at it. You don't necessarily become. It's not. It's not about the other person. Like, oh, because it's going to hurt you. You just. You don't have to think in terms of self or other. And in fact, I think both are are inappropriate. Both are factors, but the ultimate truth is that this is wrong. And and so, as a general statement, we can say that that's an important, should be an important part of your response, whatever your response is. Whether that means confronting the person or not, I think is dependent on the situation. The, the details, I, I, so it's how do you deal with bullying? I can't give you a clear answer to that, but I can talk about some of the issues involved. And I think these are the issues involved, especially focusing on the truth. The truth and freedom from freedom from attachment, from worry about your own well-being, or from anger and desire for revenge, and so on. Let's see. Mindfulness is much more about your state of mind when you do things than about what you actually do, and that's why most most questions have to be most answers can only. Uh, give general advice I can't give it, It's very hard to give Answers to specific questions Because it's kind of not the point uh, What should you do in this situation Or that situation Regardless of what you do What you should do is be mindful Whatever you end up doing What you end up doing is often largely inconsequential In comparison to how you did it And what your state of mind was when you did it What you, what you do being very much dependent on Your state of mind, of course It will, it will reflect your state of mind Whatever that might be Will be reflected in your actions Sorry, will be yes, will be reflected in your action. Is it reasonable possible for a person with a typical nine to five desk job and a family, wife, kids, etc., to become an effective meditator? It's more difficult, of course. Um, we're trying to s to set this up, this uh, at-home course, we set it up for that sort of purpose, to support people who are in similar situations. And it appears to give people great insight into the nature of the practice, the nature of mindfulness, and a real jump start on the path. So I would say... Generally, the answer is yes, in the sense that you can get a start on it. 
can you become an advanced, proficient, you know, whatever that means, a skilled meditator? Depends what you really what you mean by that. But ultimately, a, a true foundation in meditation is going to require some more intensive practice. And for many people, that means taking a vacation, a break from their lives to go and do that. So that's a really good idea. Again, I can't say for your specific situation what your results are going to be. Depends. I mean, it, yes, it's acceptable. The question is, in my mind, is what are you doing in the chair? So, you usually I would say it's um, appropriate for people who have serious injuries or are very much out of shape and like a, without flexibility. Older people, but even still, I, I mean, I would say you know you'll know for yourself. Yes, it's acceptable, but. It's also a very good thing to try and train yourself to sit on the floor and to be with pain and, and the unpleasantness of having to, to loosen up. It's a good exercise to not be daunted by the pain, unless, unless it's like an injury or something. Yes, if you're mindful, if you're if you're actually meditating, then yes, that's quite healthy. It's not easy to be that mindful, though. Take some training. Yes. When, when I tried noting in another language, the words didn't appear that often. Does it matter which language is used for noting? Don't try and find a trick. You know, that's a common trick, using different words, different languages, because it appears better. Don't do that. Use the language that's most familiar to you. If you see the words in your mind, that's not wrong, that's not a problem. Trying to fix problems is not what we're about. We're trying to understand experiences. If that's your experience, focus on it. Say seeing, seeing until it goes away. If it comes back again, keep saying it. If you don't like it, focus on the disliking. This is all satipatthana. You're seeing the three characteristics quite clearly. So good for you. What you think about what is a very telltale sign that I'm probably not going to answer it Because I probably don't think about it How can one gain enough personal restraint to follow the five precepts? Well, the five precepts are are a basic, a basis. You should really be keeping them. Wake up. You need to keep them to be reborn a human. What I mean, sorry, wake up. I didn't mean to be cruel by that. I mean, I just, you should. it should really be moving. You, sh you need to be stirred. You really should be afraid if you're not keeping the five precepts because, you know, really just give yourself a shake because you're going you're, you're gonna to have a hard time being reborn as a human being let alone a meditator. So, 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 you know, mindfulness will help. It's a good start. I think the fifth one is probably the one where, you know, certain people will have real problems with if they're alcoholics, I think would be an example. People are often concerned about the fourth precept which they they misunderstand to be to mean 
you know, if you if you say something that's not true without meaning to, then you've broken a precept. Or the first precept, they think when you step on an ant and you didn't realize it was there, you broke it, and so on. So maybe a little bit of study should be necessary. Sometimes that's the problem. Not that you're breaking them, but that you think you're breaking them, and you're, you're really not. And finally, just because you break them once doesn't mean you can't keep them. You break them, then you try again to keep them. Even just the desire to keep them, the intention to keep them can be quite beneficial. What you don't want to do is take them and then, you know, toss them aside as though you don't even care. Like, I, I gave the precepts once to a group of people. I was invited with some monks, and because I was the foreign monk, they wanted to show me off, and they had me give the precepts. Right after I gave the precepts, they brought out a... Uh, a well, we gave the precepts, and then we ate as the monks, and we were getting ready to leave, and they brought out a big two-four of beer and started handing bottles of beer around. You don't want to do that. Does metta meditation only benefit the meditator, or does it also benefit the people the meditator is directing, directing the metta to? Directing the meditation to? I mean, it depends on the situation. I think generally the consensus is that yes, it does benefit them. I don't want to speculate too much. I mean, I could start talking. I'm sure you'll find people talking about that sort of thing. I think Nagasena talks a little bit about that. When you do, when you, it's not just metta. You have to do something good. If you do something good, you can share the merits with others, but the goodness with others. Doing metta is a good thing sort of. I mean, it can be a very good thing, so you can share the goodness of it. But I don't think that's the sort of question you need to concern too much with. You can ask and I'll shoot you down if I'm gonna does, I'll try and answer. Does Buddhism consider that we have an individual nature and drive in life? Have a what? Drive individual nature. Oh pass, pass, pass. Um, what are the general Buddhist views on romance? Is it valued? No. Uh, does does indulging in caffeinated drinks break the fifth precept? I don't think so, no. No, you think the, the fifth precept... Okay, here's the thing. The fifth precept, the five precepts are, on the one hand, just rules that you take up. So if you want to make them really strict, you can. But then you have to ask, well, but wait, they're not arbitrary. The Buddha himself had an idea behind them. Uh, and he did kind of say, seems to have said, that they're, the, they're what you need to be reborn a human being. So what is it you need to be reborn a human being? I think the consensus is, and I think rightly so, that the fifth precept has to be intoxicating and, and significantly intoxicating. It can't just affect your mood. Uh, so like even... Even marijuana, I hesitate, but marijuana is not that intoxicating. Does it break the fifth precept? The consensus is yes. I'm, I'm quite sure the consensus is yes. But why, is that, why I single it, I separate it out, is because it is still different from alcohol. Alcohol really intoxicates your mind. So the Buddha singled that out. I mean, things like mushrooms, psilocybin, yeah, some people are going to hate me, going to not be happy to hear this, but I don't think psilocybin, I think it is is worse in the sense of what it does to your mind. Acid, I've never done acid, but I'm, I'm quite sure it's... Along those, I've seen people on acid, and it, yes, that's an intoxication. I mean, it's a whole other level. It's quite different as well from alcohol, but if you have alcohol as the standard... Marijuana, yes, it's against the precepts. Don't don't use marijuana. It's I would say it's pretty useless. 
myself, having done all, having smoked a lot of it in my youth, there's no real benefit to it. And from a spiritual, from a Buddhist perspective, it's it's harmful. Don't do it. Uh, caffeine, nicotine, these are two good examples. Even yeah, caffeine and nicotine. These are two good examples of things that affect the mind. And so I would say they're problematic, for sure. Nicotine especially because it's addictive, but I don't think the addiction is has anything to do with the fifth precept. I don't think that's at all the reason why it should be considered for for being forbidden. But I don't think either of these is significant enough to be a, a, a matter of concern. I don't think they would have been at all considered to be uh, transgressing the fifth precept. I mean, absolutely Buddhists don't in general. But I don't drink caffeine much. I used to drink it before I had an exam when I was in university, and it really helps. Green tea right before the exam. You really have a better exam if you do that. Um, and I, I don't. I would say I would tell my students not to not to smoke cigarettes. I mean, I wouldn't tell them they're breaking the five precepts, but I would certainly tell them to quit. Uh, I think nicotine and, and caffeine are like that. If you're keeping the eight precepts, let's say, I would. I mean, again, it's not breaking the eight precepts, but I would say that's probably the point where you'd want to give up caffeine and, and cigarettes. I don't think they're going to prevent you from being reborn a human being. Though caffeine, uh, sorry, uh, nicotine might, but for a different reason, because of the intense addiction. And, and and lighter in the body. There's less um, you know problems with with saturated fats and so on. Veganism can also be very harmful because if you don't do it properly, uh, you become sick. And sickness is not great for meditation. I mean, it can be a good meditation object, but it can also get in the way of doing intensive meditation. It's certainly not a very important thing to consider. Unless you're thinking for ethical reasons, there might be uh, useful. I mean, we try to be vegetarian here. I think we are. You know, we've been vegetarian for a while. At our center, not buying uh, buying meat. but Oh, but that's right. Some people bring me meat sometimes. I just bring it so I eat it. It's dead. Its owner doesn't wor isn't worrying about it anymore. Could you explain the difference between mindfulness, vipassana, satipatthana in regards to meditation? I'm not even sure what's being asked there, but I recommend reading my booklet. And I've done some videos on Satipatthana Vipassana. I mean, the only way I'm going to give you a real answer is if you learn about our tradition. So look up some of my videos on Satipatthana Vipassana and you'll get a sense of the answer. How would you change the technique for an anagam working as Aramanship? Well, the technique doesn't change, but there are certain intensive practices you can undertake at higher levels, higher stages. Or just stand 
You just say num num, <laughs> or don't do anything if you don't feel it. Just go back to the rising, falling. We're not trying to. What was the question? How do we what? How do we process it or um, overcome do, it? Do we examine? No. What's the first part? How do you? No, no, no. Then what was the first? No, no. What was the first? No, no. How do you get over? Oh, get over that. So, yeah, you don't have to get over it. You just have to let let it be. How can I get into meditation? And how long would you get over your need to get over it? Sorry. Go ahead. How can I get into meditation? And how long would you recommend meditating every day? How, how, how should I get into meditation? Well, we have an at-home course. That's what we're recommending. If you haven't done it, read the booklet on how to meditate. Once you've read the booklet, sign up for an at-home course. We'll meet once a week. And I'll give you everything you need to know. You'll ask questions to me. I'll ask questions of you. And I'll give you new exercises every week. Just to mention, there, there's a link in the YouTube video description mm -hmm. where to go for that one, please. I've been blessed with the opportunity to have the time to sit and study the Dhamma for eight hours a day. How should I break up my time between study, meditation, and other practices? So I think if you're doing serious practice, you should put study aside. That's pretty much uh, agreed upon, I think. I wouldn't try to find a happy medium between the two. Of course, when you're studying, you should still do some meditation, but then you're, you're, that's a period of study outside of meditation a course or a meditation focus. So if you're focused on meditation and when you're focused on meditation you should really just put aside study, uh, try to find a teacher, someone who can guide you, or just at the least try and find the, the wisdom from within. You know, there's a real... You, I think there's a real misunderstanding of how much study needs to be done. You think about in the Buddha's time, and of course we're talking in the Buddha's time, but they would get one sutta. All these suttas, people read all the suttas. In Buddha's time they get one sutta, and that's what they use to meditate. Two, three, you know, more, some, you know. It's not to say you only need one sutta, but you compare it. There was no sense that everyone should learn all the suttas or all the teachings of the Buddha or all the Abhidhamma or something like that. Study should be something ongoing in your life. You know. As a Buddhist, you study. But if you've got time to do meditation and you want to focus on meditation, put aside study. It's not really nearly as important as people think. Or... It's quality over quantity, and by quality it means quality of the the appreciation. You know, sometimes if you study a lot, how could you possibly appreciate what you've studied? How could you possibly use it? You know, really get the benefit of it. So we skim over everything, and you learn everything, and you know nothing. If you if you learn one sutta, and you learn it thoroughly, there's so many suttas where that one sutta would take you all the way to Arahantship. If you could understand it and practice it. So why do you need to study so much? Right? Well, no, there's benefit to studying a lot. You get a wider, broader uh, sense. But it's not nearly as necessary as people think. And the emphasis should be placed on practice. Of an experience occurs after the experience. 
During walking meditation, why do I find the movement of the foot and the noting occur simultaneously? Some guidance, please. Well, it's not quite like that. You, you, and this is why we try to point out the beginning and the end of the movement. Because it's happening so quickly. But you can never note something as it's happening. You have to experience it. And then right after you experience it, so you're lifting the foot, right? At some point, you become aware of a sensation involved with the lifting of the foot. And at that point, right after that happens, you'll say to yourself, lifting. Or you'll start saying lifting, right? And you can say lift. And then ding is when you realize, as soon as you realize you've stopped, you say ding. It's, I mean, it's it's if you're if you're good, it's immediately after. But that's not really the point. The point of the noting is to remind yourself or to keep to keep your mind in an objective, clear, non-judgmental state. That's all. Something happens, you experience it, and you react to it as an experience, not a, a good or a bad thing, not as me or mine, or so on. I mean, really, if you, you don't have to worry about what I said because it's just very technical in some cases. It appears to be at the same time, but it can be very quick. The point is that as soon as you know something, then you note it. But it has to be right after, of course. It has to be in a response. to people living in the world during these times and what changes do you think is coming and what are the challenges mm -hmm. you might face in the future mm -hmm. that's a big question huh well I, I think it's, a, it's an important message of Sticking to the truth, holding holding to the truth, rather than because it's very different from worrying about our own well-being, worrying about the uh, other people's well-being, getting angry about the state of things, getting angry at other people. Stick to the truth. Try and find the truth, try and understand the truth. And and beyond just understanding the truth, let the truth be what you hold on to, not you're angry because of the truth, right? Or you're scared because of the truth. Mindfulness is very much about the truth. It's about not only knowing it, but sticking to it. The truth and nothing but the truth. There you go. It's a good saying. The truth and nothing but the truth. So help you, Buddha. That's the message, if anything. So I mean, it has to be fairly general, or else I'd have to be have to talk for a long time. But the, in brief, stick to the truth. As far as what changes are coming, yeah, I don't speculate on that. I think. It's interesting sometimes to imagine terrible things happening because it helps remind us that anything could happen. But ultimately, that's the truth. Anything could happen. I mean, not anything will happen. Something will happen. But it may not be what we expect is the point. And you're much better off taking the perspective that anything could happen than you're not caught off guard. You have to acknowledge that it may not be what you expect or what you want. Kind of an underwhelming answer, I know. Wouldn't worry about the big questions, I guess is a good part of the answer. Wouldn't worry too much about the big questions. You make big questions, you're making problems where there aren't problems.
focus on the it was one Buddhist teacher said, "Don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, don't, uh, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff." It's a good point. If um, metta is universal, then wouldn't we be less prejudiced and have compassion for animals? And plants, and therefore become vegan. So metta is not love. Again, that's that's a good point. That it's not that's not it. No, we wouldn't, because that would be if we loved them, or 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 felt sad for them, or so on. That's kind of a cruel answer, isn't it? Sounds like I'm a heartless wretch. It's not wrong. It's good if you want to. You know, have concern for other beings, but if you're really concerned about them, you're going to get stuck and get attached. You'll never be free. You'll never be able to leave behind samsara because you'll always be worried and sad about other beings. That's really the point. So we just don't worry about beings dying, because otherwise we'd never leave. We never we never free ourselves because there's always more beings. Because because it's impossible to stop the killing. It's impossible to stop the suffering of the world. And it's not even the worst thing. The suffering is not the worst thing. The worst thing is the evil, the killing. So don't kill, don't hurt. Don't worry about beings dying, beings getting hurt. That's not something you can fix. No, if anything you'll get, you should have, well, some people don't, I suppose. I think in general you should get better memory through meditation, but I see some people don't. Anyway, well, you shouldn't worry in general. If it was a question about worrying, you shouldn't worry if that's what the question was. If you're worrying that, well, you should not worried, worried, because it's a cause of stress. Absolutely, yes. There's so much good in Buddhism. This can't be understated. This can't be overstated. Can't be stressed too much. There's so much good in Buddhism. It's just a plethora or a, a cornucopia of goodness. Just listening to the Dhamma, that's goodness. Practicing metta is goodness. Practicing satipatthana is goodness. Teaching the Dhamma to others, sharing the Dhamma with others, giving Dhamma materials to others, paying respect to the Buddha, thinking about the Buddha, thinking respectfully about the Buddha, talking about the Buddha, reading the Dhamma, giving gifts to others, you know, because it's a, it's a Buddhist practice. Well, giving gifts because giving is good and that sort of thing. Being kind to others, being patient, all the many teachings of the Buddha. So much goodness. If you're not going to heaven, then heaven's not worth going to. What I mean to say is that many religions would say you'll go to hell if you practice Buddhism, which is, well, then hell must be a great place. If, if a great person like you is going there, it must be a wonderful place. You know, if there really is or really were a dictator god like that, no? Who sends good people to hell? If there, if that were really somehow possible, then that would be great. It would be a great way to stand up to 
to injustice. No? Be prepared to go to hell. Stand up to it. Why would you want to go? Oh, that would be the worst thing, no? Going to heaven, knowing, if this were somehow the case, knowing that all these good people are, are not going to get to go, even though you were yeah, maybe just an okay person. All these really good people, they're all going to hell. How could you live with yourself in heaven? Did Buddha study or just experiment and meditate? And if he just meditated, then can we come to the same conclusion and theories as Buddha without study? So the Buddha did study, he had lots of teachers, the, the Bodhisattva did, not the Buddha, before he was a Buddha. He studied, he practiced as well, he did a lot more practice than study, I think. But yes, you can you can become a Buddha, just going to take you four uncountable eons and a hundred thousand great eons. An uncountable eon doesn't sound like much, but it's... 100,000 eons is nothing is literally nothing compared to an uncountable period of time it's literally uncountable it gets to the point where you can no longer count it's no longer possible to count for some reason it's that long the, the Buddha four of those so he actually counted how many of them it was somehow so if you want to take that long yeah you can learn it all yourself Lots of feelings are possible even without a couple of years, but they're just feelings. They come and they go. They're anichang, dukang, anatta. You should not happy, happy, and let it go. Atheism is, atheism is correct. Atheism is the only correct position. I don't know where you got the idea that atheism is, atheism is incorrect. Rebirth isn't really correct because it's not really rebirth. It's just that at the moment, it's just really death isn't real. The moment of what we call death, the mind just, can, there's more mind arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. It has nothing to do with atheism. Wishing for them to be free from suffering. If beings have suffering, may they be free from suffering. If uh, they are in danger of suffering, may they avoid suffering. That sort of thing. It's an attitude, really. You can you can spend time considering that. Spend time thinking about other beings, especially those who are in suffering, and wish for them to be free. That state of mind, that, that wishing, that inclination towards their freedom from suffering, that's compassion, that's karuna. See, metta and karuna are not necessary. People misunderstand that somehow this is a core Buddhist practice. Yes, in some traditions, not in our tradition. They're good things, they're supportive of your practice, but they're not necessary. That's not something you have to worry about. Am I compassionate? It, look, if you're really mindful and you practice mindfulness, you'll become more compassionate, more kind, more friendly, more sympathetic. No, come on. Yeah, okay. It'd be nice if everyone had perfect sound. I, I'm sorry. 
so many problems with audio. We, I have no idea really how to make the audio perfect. Right now we've got it all, many things are all tweaked. So if you can hear, consider yourself lucky. Well, it's moments, right? So each moment leads to another moment And it's not always going to be a smooth transition There's lots of abrupt changes in the mind But we shouldn't think of the moment of death as very much different It's going to be in some ways very different Because we're going to be quite shocked often by the change But I don't know I, I think it, you may be trying to be a little too technical Because it's much more general, you know, your patterns of behavior are going to be the same. Moment after moment, it's chaotic. You never really know what to expect. Alright. Well, we're almost done, no? So find, a med find the meditation once and we can stop there. Alright, well, why don't we just stop? Unless there's some really important ones, you know. Remember the remember the criteria. The best criteria, if the person doesn't get an if an answer to this question will help this person in their meditation practice. If we have none of those, then I think we've done our job. And I know it's 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 kind of cruel that we have to be the arbiters of that. People uh, put out effort to ask their questions, right? They they came all this way to ask these questions. Went all the way to their computer anyway. Huh? And it wasn't theirs. It was their question. Yeah. Oh. But you haven't answered it. I haven't answered it. I just pasted it on there. All right, go ahead. Oh, we were not. We weren't maybe going to answer. Ask it. Oh, go ahead. I'll, I'll say no if it's not. What is the definition of good? Why is it preferable to bad? Surely, mm -hmm. an enlightened mind does not make a judgment of the yin yang of reality. Hmm. There's no yin-yang of reality, that, that's misleading. Good is pretty objective. Good is... I want to say good is what leads to suffer, what leads to freedom from suffering or leads to happiness, let's say. And evil is what leads to suffering, but that's only a way of, of determining, a way of, of noticing what is good. Things are good just by their very nature. And that might be hard to understand because logically it doesn't make much sense, but it, practically it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what you see. You see what is the right thing to do. It has a lot to do with efficiency, really. Evil is very inefficient. It's jarring, it's senseless, meaningless, pointless. You know, it's going out of your way to do something for no reason, for no good reason, for a reason that doesn't make any sense. It's contradictory. You want to be happy, you do something that leads to suffering. It's futile, you want something to satisfy you, it can't satisfy you. So goodness is cohesive, it's supportive, it, it brings the, the being, the mind uh, cohesion, strength, sense of wholeness, wholesomeness. So it is objective, 
It isn't arbitrary. There's a there's a difference. The yin yang is a very very misled way of of thinking about it. False dichotomy. No, false equivalent. Sorry, false equivalent. They're not the same. Huh? On what? Oh no. Uh, yeah, it's not plugged in. The plug is over there. That's okay. We'll end. Battery is critically low, so we're ending. It's a good sign. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good night. Stop. Stop it. We'll plug it in. <laughs>